Morning, everyone. So we're continuing our series uh, into Samuel, and uh, I'm going to be reading from uh, 2 Samuel 7, uh, actually verse, starting at verse 17 through to uh, 29. Uh, that's 17 through to 29. That's in, on page uh, 311 in your red Bibles. So I'll give you a second to find that. So that's uh, 2 Samuel 17, sorry, 2 Samuel 7, verses 17 to 29. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And this, as if this was not, were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you've also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? What more can David say to you, for you know your servant, O sovereign Lord? For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. How great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself? and to make a name for himself, and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods before your people, whom you've redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised, so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, O sovereign Lord, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a uh, busy, noisy morning, hasn't it? It's been great to have the children in. Um, it's been a long time coming. Some of them have uh, not been together in church for the whole of their lives. And uh, it's a great uh, opportunity for them, great practice, great training. 
Um, but it has been a, a busy morning. Some of us have been here a long time sorting out tents and stickers. So why don't we take a moment of quiet and uh, I'm going to lead us in a prayer that we will uh, still our hearts and minds before God's word. Let's, uh, let's pray. O oh, sovereign Lord, you are God. Your words are trustworthy. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to sit under your good word. We pray that this word might help us, that it will shape our hearts, our thoughts, our lives, so that we might come to appreciate the Lord Jesus Christ who rules all things, that we might center our lives upon him, and that you might do us good. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, someone once said that who you are when you pray is who you are really. You could, of course, approach this the other way around and say that the kind of person that you are will determine the way that you pray. If you are somebody who prays, that is. So if you're a selfish person, you'll pray selfishly. If you're a loving person, you'll pray in a loving way. If you're a courageous person, you'll pray courageously, and so on and so forth. But I think the first statement that I just quoted, it says something even more profound. Who you are when you pray is who you are really. This means that no matter how you present yourself, to the world, to those closest to you, or even to yourself, it is when you appear before the throne of God in heaven, when you bring to him what is closest to your heart, that the real you is finally and fully seen. Who you are when you pray is who you are really. Well, come back with me then to 2 Samuel 7, because here we have an opportunity to listen to an extraordinary prayer, a prayer that is prayed under unique and special circumstances. The prayer that we're going to listen to for the next few minutes is the prayer that King David of Israel prayed when he heard the word of God concerning his own future and the future of the world. It is a truly magnificent prayer. Just cast your eyes over it again. It's full of deep reverence for God. It's full of elevated praise. Notice, for example, the number of times David uses the name of God. O sovereign Lord, O sovereign Lord, O sovereign Lord, O Lord Almighty, all the way through. It's also a historically and theologically important prayer, spoken at a major turning point of the story of salvation in the Bible. And it's a big prayer, isn't it? Reaching right back to God's creation purposes, reaching right forwards to eternity. Notice, for example, the repeated words, great, house, forever, blessing. This is not a prayer that David would have a good day. This is a prayer that the world will come to fulfillment according to God's purposes. It's a very big prayer. It's also a prayer that has a great deal to teach us, 
teaches us about who God is, about who we are, what it means to respond to his word. And of course, it teaches us about prayer itself. But I want to suggest another lesson to take away from this prayer this morning. And that is not so much a lesson on how to pray, although that is valuable and that will be part of it. But I think the major lesson we need to take away from this is how to be. What I want us to notice is what I'm going to call the internal posture of David. If you can sort of understand that and get our, get our heads around that. The internal posture of David. What I mean by this is his attitude, his disposition before God revealed in the way he prays. Who he is in reality is revealed. And the reason I think this is the lesson is because I think, as I hinted last week, that David's prayer here and the whole chapter is taken up and completed in the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the New Testament. The same hopes and dreams, the same theology underlines both prayers. And therefore, what I want to suggest is that what we have here is not just a model of how to pray but a model of how to be. How to actually be somebody who is right before God. How, if I can put it this way without sounding superficial, how to be happy and holy as a man or woman or boy or girl in God's world. No matter what your personality, no matter your emotional state, or the state of your mental health, to use three modern phrases not found in the Bible, this is deeper. This is a matter of the internal posture of your heart and soul. It's resilient to how you feel, goes beyond the chemistry of the brain, goes beyond the circumstances of life, because it's about the ultimate reality of your life, who you are before God, and how you respond to him. It is a posture, a way of being that is always right and always good because it's real. Well, I want to sum that posture up, that internal inner life of David, by two words, a pair of words that we need to keep together. And the pair of words is humble confidence. It's kind of a pair that balances each other out. Humble, confidence. And you see this expressed in the two halves of the passage by praise and prayer. So those are our two headings. Humble praise, confident prayer. Humble praise then in 17.24. Last week in 8 to 16, we heard the words that God spoke to Nathan the prophet about David. And as Joe has already reminded us, that amounted, in effect, to a promise concerning the everlasting kingdom that God intends to bring about through David's offspring. Now look at verse 17, you'll see that David hears what God has said to Nathan the prophet, and the rest of the chapter is David responding to what he has heard. So the first half of the chapter are God's words to David... The second half of the chapter are David's words to God as he responds to God's words to David. 
We need to keep that in mind, and we'll come back to it right at the end. But before we look at what David says, I wanted to notice his physical posture in verse 18. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. It's important to notice this. We might be used to praying while seated. We could actually, in these pews, kneel, be very uncomfortable, but there are little kneeling benches in some of the pews. But we tend to pray while seated. But funnily enough, sitting is not the usual posture for prayer in the Bible. Usually, people either stand up to pray with their hands raised to heaven or bow down to pray, or even prostrate themselves on the ground. That is actually the usual way of praying in the Bible. Sitting to pray is actually very rare. The language of David, sitting before the Lord, therefore, I think is very deliberate. It is there to give us a picture, before David has even opened his mouth, of the profound effect the word of God has had on him, and the posture that he has come to. It's helpful to know that the word sit in Hebrew is the same word as the word translated settled in verse 1, or dwell in some versions. Because you may remember that the chapter began with David sitting in his palace of cedar. And if you look over at verse 1, you'll see that our Bible translates that as settled, which is a perfectly good translation. He is settled in his grand palace of cedar. That is his posture at the beginning of the chapter. And you may remember that the ark of the Lord was sitting, was settled in the tent. Same word translated in verse 2 as remains. And so the chapter began with this kind of strange situation with David settled in the palace and God, as it were, settled in the tent. And that is what gave rise to the chapter and David's feeling of discontent, feeling that something was wrong. And his answer, remember, was his plan to build God a grand house. Well, then he hears the word. And we come to verse 18. And so you see that the first effect that the word has on David is to change his posture, to move him from being settled in his palace to being settled before the Lord in the tent. And I don't want us to miss the significance of this change. David is a man who has been humbled by the word of God. And that is good. Not humiliated, humbled. He is now exactly where the king of Israel ought to be. He is sitting at the feet of the throne of God. He's not telling God his ideas. He is listening to God's word as a disciple. And so before we look at David's words, we need to get that picture in our minds and keep it there for the whole of the prayer because here is a man who is settled before the Lord. And I wonder if you are somebody who can associate with that. His anxious striving has ceased. His man-centered dreams have been put away. His ears have been filled with the word of God. To use a picture from the New Testament, he is standing on 
rock. To use another picture from the New Testament, he is dressed and in his right mind. He knows God and he knows himself. He is settled before the Lord. That is the picture. Well, if we've got that picture in our heads, let's turn to his words, because that physical posture is now expressed in what David says. Because remember, who you are when you pray is who you are really. And I just wanted to notice three details, three bullet points on the sheet, three details. The greatness of God, the grace of God, and the plans of God. Firstly, notice the greatness of God. You'll have noticed when Paul read that David addresses God seven or eight times. It sounds quite repetitive, doesn't it? Seven or eight times throughout the passage, this particular phrase that occurs nowhere else in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. It sounds a little bit at first reading, like David is just sort of, he just can't stop himself. He just repeats himself. The phrase translated in our version as sovereign Lord, or you may have a version that says Lord God. It combines the ordinary Hebrew word, Lord, or Master, Adonai, with the name that God has revealed to Moses, Yahweh, which is usually translated Lord with capital letters in our Bible. So literally, what he is saying is, Lord, Lord. Or perhaps, my Master, Lord. And the point of it is that you can't really get a a higher way of addressing God than Lord, Lord. Because Lord is his name and Lord is his position. And the language of greatness running through the prayer adds to this sense of David's reverent awe in the presence of God. It also happens that this same phrase, which is not used often in the Bible, is used by Abraham in chapter 15 when Abraham responds to God's promise. And notice how David's Address of God as Lord, Lord, has its counterpart in how David sees himself. The greater God appears in David's thinking, the smaller David himself becomes. So if God is his master, notice how David addresses himself as the servant, something he mentions ten times throughout the passage. In other words, David's settled posture of humility comes... Not from a sort of Uriah Heap kind of modesty. You know, I'm very humble. I'm a very humble man. But through a knowledge of God and therefore a knowledge of himself. As John Calvin famously said, this combined knowledge of God and self are really all we need to know. All we need to know in this world. So if you've just finished your A-levels or you've just finished your degree and you're worried about retaining all that information, don't worry about it. All you need to know for a successful life in this world is who God is and who you are as well. Forget all those equations, all those verb forms, the elemental table. You'll never remember it. It'll only come in handy for university challenge. All you need to know is who God is And who you are. And if you know who God is, you know that you are very small. And that's okay. That's more than okay, that's good. 
But if you don't know who God is, if this sovereign, mighty, transcendent God is not part of your worldview, you will never have a healthy view of yourself. Your view of yourself will always be distorted. You'll either think too low of yourself or too high of yourself. You'll either be pride or you'll despair, proud or you'll despair. Or you may come to believe that dangerous myth that our society insists on teaching children from year one to the end of uh, school, that they are exceptional, that you can change the world, that you deserve to succeed in whatever you want. You'll come to kind of believe that myth of indestructible entitlement, that you deserve to be happy, that you deserve to be successful, that the world revolves around you. And while this might be good, we may, we may want to build up children's self-esteem in a good way, but this sense of entitlement is bad because it's unreal. Because before the throne of God, even David, Israel's greatest king, I want to suggest one of the greatest men who has ever lived, is small, is of no account, is tiny, and that is good. The greatness of God. Secondly, notice David's preoccupation with the grace of God. The grace of God. Look at verse 18. Who am I, sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. David, can you see, is overwhelmed by the undeserved grace of God. What God has done to bring him this far is everything that we have seen from 1 Samuel 16 onwards, taking him, as he was reminded in verse 8, from farming his father's sheep to leading the nation of Israel. And so with that question, who am I, that rhetorical question which is demanding the answer, nobody, David is recognizing the grace of God in his life. That none of this was deserved. That God, you may remember, set his heart upon him, not because David was a godly man, but because, simply because God chose him. And you see that in verse 21. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. In other words, if we were to ask, why has God chosen David and not Saul? Then the answer in verse 21 is because he wanted to. There is nothing about David that made God choose him. It was because it was God's will. Why was it God's will? Well, because it was. It was what was in his heart. And to ask further is to go beyond what is revealed. This is the grace of God. And this same grace of God is the motivation for dealing with God's people throughout their history, God's choice of Israel, unique among the people of the world, God's rescuing of them, redeeming them, bringing them into the promised land, which you see in 22 to 24, is all because of the grace of God. Well, thirdly, notice the plans of God, the greatness of God, the grace of God. Thirdly, the plans of God. And this, I think, is the thing that 
to use a, a, a non-biblical phrase again, has blown his mind. This is the thing that David is really exercised about, that he can't quite get his head around. Look again at verse 19. Having praised God for bringing him this far, David now looks ahead to the really great thing that God said through Nathan the prophet that he would do in the future. And this future plan of God, it comes out in various times in the prayer, but look at verse 19 particularly. It's a bit of a difficult phrase, this one. He says, is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? It's an unusual and it's a much debated phrase. But let me show you on the screen. The Hebrew simply says this. It says, is, it's not a question. It says, and this is Torah for Adam. And this will be Torah for Adam, either way. So the word Torah is often translated as law or instruction. We might think of the law of Moses, for example, but it's broader than that. It means essentially divine revelation. Adam, of course, takes us back to the first human being God created, but it's also the Bible's word for the whole of humanity represented in Adam. So I think what David is saying in verse 19 is simply that this promise for his house, his dynasty, his descendants, is the direction that God is giving to the whole of humanity. Another translation says, this is God's charter for mankind. In other words, and this is what has blown David's mind, is that what God has revealed to him concerns something much bigger than himself, bigger than his offspring or descendants, his house, bigger than even the future of Israel. It concerns the whole of mankind for the whole of eternity. And you can't really get much bigger than that, can you? And so David finds himself small, but caught up in God's grand purposes for the universe. No wonder he is humbled. No wonder he felt his smallness. Because after all, he is just a man. He is himself a son of Adam. As he would write in Psalm 22, I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by men, despised by the people. How can God possibly work his great purposes out through one man? How can God achieve this future for mankind through one man? Well, if you've been around for this series or series remember this is to Samuel and when we ask a question like that we should tune in to the theme tune of the book which you'll remember comes in 1 Samuel 2 where God sets out his stall as the God of reversals and surprises the God if I can sort of paraphrase it like this who does big things through small things that is the God of 1 Samuel 2 he's A big God who does big things through small things. And so look at the diagram with me on the screen and see what is to come. See, God God had always promised to bless humanity 
And he chose Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. There was a narrowing down to bring that blessing about. Well, now see how the promise narrows down even further because God chooses one man, David, the king. And it's this point that David realizes that it is through him that God will bless the whole of humanity. And that really is the shape of the Bible story. It moves from Adam to the king, back to Adam. So God's purpose is always to bless humanity, to redeem the sons and daughters of Adam by a son of Adam. And so the promise God gives to David is a great and gracious thing. It's great because it's for all of humanity. It's gracious because God is using a small thing to accomplish a great thing. And so David is overwhelmed with praise of God that this small, weak person will be the means that God will use to bless the whole of humanity to fulfill his purposes. But of course, David can't see what we can see. We can see Jesus, the king, that son of David that Joe talked about in those New Testament references earlier. The son of David who comes into the world, lives Adam's perfect life, dies Adam's just death, takes Adam's punishment in order to restore Adam's future. David can't see that, but we can see it. How God did a great thing through this little thing, through the little thing of a dying man on a cross. And so our praise and our awe should be even greater. But come back then to that posture of David, of humble praise. And can you see what a good and healthy posture this is to have? To be somebody who is settled before this God. To be somebody who knows this God in his self-revealed greatness. To know his name, his character. To know that God knows all about him. All his flaws, all his weaknesses, all his sin. And he's okay with that. He's got nothing to hide. Nowhere to run. David knows that he is a small person. That he's ordinary, that he's average that there's nothing about him, just as there was nothing about Israel that is worthy of God's choice. He's no hero. He's not entitled to be one. He's given up his tiny man-centered ambitions, and they've been replaced by joining hands with God in his greater work. Indeed, the smaller David's view of himself, the more magnificent his view and the louder his praise of God. Well, there's the first part, the first kind of part of this inner posture, the healthy inner life or disposition that David displays. David is marked by humble praise. 
But there's another side to this we need to see. And we'll look at this more briefly. This is David's confident prayer in 25 to 29. Of course, in one sense, all of 18 to 29 is a prayer. David is speaking to God. But in the narrower sense of a prayer being something we ask of God, then actually there's only one line that really is a request, and it might be a surprise. Have a look at verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Again, three bullet points, three details, what David asks, why he asks it, and what is the result. What David asks, first of all. The phrase, and now, splits the passage at verse 29 and begins a conclusion to David's prayer. And so what he asks for in verse 25 is based on everything that we've seen so far in the chapter. David knows who God is, he knows what he is planning, and this leads him to pray. But notice carefully what it is he asks for. Verse 25. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised. And if you've seen the sermon trailer this week, you'll now realize why Emma and I were talking about spaghetti bolognese. He simply asks God to do what he said he would do. He asks him to keep his promise. Now, this might seem strange at first, but it's actually very normal in the Bible, and it tells us a lot about prayer and a lot about God. For example, when Moses prayed for God to show mercy to Israel after they'd worshipped the golden calf in Exodus 32, he didn't say, Lord, have mercy on them because actually they're quite a nice bunch. Please give them a second chance. They weren't a nice bunch. They were a bunch of horrible idolaters who just substituted God for a golden calf and they did not deserve a second chance. Instead, he said, remember your promise to Abraham. And if you destroy these people, you can't fulfill your promise to Abraham. He claims the promise of God. Similarly, when Nehemiah prays for Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 1, He asks for God's mercy on the whole city. Not because Jerusalem is a wonderful place and it's got the temple that David built and all this wonderful architecture and wouldn't it be a shame if all these people were killed by the Babylonians? No, no. He asks God to save Jerusalem, not because they deserve to be saved, but for God to keep his promise to Moses that there will be a place where the world can see that God is worshipped. Or when Daniel asked God to deliver the Jews after 70 years in exile in Daniel chapter 9. He doesn't say to God, look, we've had enough of this. We want to go home. He says, remember what you promised to Jeremiah. And when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. It is a prayer that we pray knowing that he has already brought his kingdom in Jesus Christ. As one of the Puritans puts it, it is no presumption to burden God with his own promises. Or as John puts it in 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, how do we know God's will? 
because he's revealed it. What David prays for, he claims the promise that God has already made. Secondly, why does he pray? Well, verse 25, do as you have promised so that your name will be great forever. Then men will say the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established before you. At first sight, it can sound like David is excited about his house being established. But actually what he's praying for, notice, is the name of God being famous. David's prayer is not about him, it's about God and his glory. And again, this is typical of prayers in the Bible. Think of Moses praying again for mercy, this time in Numbers 14. It's not on the basis of how bad it's going to be for the people of Israel to suffer the punishment they deserve. But it's about God's reputation among the nations. Or when Jerusalem was threatened by the Assyrians, Hezekiah prays for deliverance. So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are God, Isaiah 37. And David, when you read the Psalms, he's all about God's glory. Even in his worst moments of sin and failure, what David cared about was the glory, the name, the fame, the reputation of God. Hallowed be your name, as Jesus taught us. Well, that's the what, the why. Thirdly, notice the result. Last week I asked, what is the result of all this praying your kingdom come? Well, look with me as David looks ahead with total confidence at how God will answer this prayer. Verse 27, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to offer you this prayer. O sovereign Lord, you are good. Your words are trustworthy. You have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant that may continue forever in your sight. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. David has found courage to pray because of what he knows God will do. And so David is thrilled to be swept up in the purposes of God And that last line with the word blessing repeated three times echoes the promise of God to Abraham to bless the world through the seed of Abraham. And David now looks back and sees that God's fresh promise to him rests on that prior promise to Abraham. And he looks ahead. And he looks forward, however shadowy the future may be. He can see the seed of the seed, the promise-bearing son, the one who we meet in the New Testament as son of David, risen from the dead, son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Therefore, this is David's prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Or as the book of Revelation puts it, come Lord Jesus. Well, let's take a moment to conclude and to uh, wrap up what we learn from this prayer of David and apply it to ourselves.
We've been listening, I think, to one of the great prayers of the Bible. It's a model prayer because it conforms to the pattern Jesus taught his disciples to pray. But what I hope we'll take away this morning is not just a lesson in prayer, and there are plenty of things we could talk about, perhaps in the Q&A later this week. But I think the big lesson is this picture of a right posture before God. A posture for the how, how to live for the whole of life. And it's expressed in two actions, in praise of God's greatness and confident prayer in the light of his promise. And it's summed up in two words, humble confidence. And if you only take two way, words away from this morning, let it be those two words, humble confidence. And I want to suggest that this posture is good for us. It saves us from pride in ourselves and despair in ourselves. It turns away from the anxiety over what we don't have and haven't achieved and the ingratitude of what we have. It replaces the misery of thwarted dreams, threatened egos, frustrated plans with a simple joy and confidence that God's kingdom is coming. Now, just to be clear, a little disclaimer, I'm not saying that if you follow David, all your problems will go away. I'm not promising psychological therapy. This is much deeper. This is who you are before God as you recognize King Jesus and respond. How can I be sure that this is the case? Well, just read the Psalms. And you'll see that David goes on to have all sorts of highs and lows. All sorts of hardships, difficulties, sadness, tears, joys, sorrows, successes, failures, sin and repentance. But I think if you read the Psalms, you'll see that he never loses this fundamental posture of being settled before the Lord. And that's why I want to say he is happy and holy before God, no matter what his emotional state. Somebody we saw in the last chapter is capable of dancing before the Lord. Here is someone with the indestructible joy of the forgiven sinner. Here is someone who knows actually he does not need to change the world. Here is someone who's given up his man-centered ambitions for the glory of God. Like Job who cries from the midst of his suffering, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Or like the man who built his house upon the rock in Jesus' parable, he will not blow over when the storm comes. Or like the cured demoniac who Jesus drives out the demons into the pigs and there's a connection there that when you collect your children from grub roots, you may notice he is sitting, dressed, and in his right mind. Here then is David's posture in his prayer and his posture in life, settled before the Lord. He knows God. It's fully known by God. 
as an indestructible security. Are you settled before God, before King Jesus? Well, if you're not sure, there is one final thing we need to note. And where does this come from? How do you receive or achieve this worldview that leads to that posture? Whether you're someone who has been following Christ for many years or you're brand new this morning, this is the first time you've heard this, where does it come from? Well, look again with me at verse 17. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. This is actually the key to it all. This is the most important thing we can learn about David's prayer. David's prayer is a response to the gospel that Nathan preached to him. God spoke to Nathan. Nathan spoke to David. David heard the word of God. He heard the truth of God. And that changed everything. He came to see himself and his place in the world through the absolute crystal clear lenses of God's revelation. The revelation that changed his heart, his soul, his mind, even the position of his body. The reality that conforms to the very heart of God. And so here then is the invitation this morning. To hear the gospel that Jesus Christ is king. And to come and settle yourself under his grace and greatness. To know who he is. To know who you are. And to live the life for which you are created. And redeemed. And called. So let's have a moment of quiet then to do just that. And then the band will play our final song. Come, O fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. But before the band, lead us in that. Let's have a moment of quiet.